Episode of Detecting the Marvelous. I'm Lainey LaRose here with Dan Rosen and Matthew Ardill. How's everyone go- doing? Awesome. Good. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Nice. Thanks. Yeah. So today we're diving in deep with none other than the Sandman. How are we feeling about it? Yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've consulted my like, uh, undergrad philosophy and sociology textbooks <laughs> and like <laughs> textbooks. So I think I've got enough of the references now. And, yeah, because yeah. there will be a quiz later. So per- yeah, <laughs> perfect. Um, awesome. Uh, well, I guess uh, if it's all right, without further ado, I'll start with the Sandman history. Which, to be honest, I'm like, well, this is the beginning of the Sandman. Uh, you know, it began published in 1989. So this is just like, like, what else is there to say? But because uh, like it, like, there's actually like a lot more to the backup than I thought. Um, it is kind of to me like the ultimate Neil Gaiman series uh, as it goes through like the origin and nature of all mythologies and belief systems, whereas most of his stuff focus on just like different specific aspects of mythologies like American gods or Nancy boys or stardust. Uh, and I found this one quote that really summed up Gaiman's inspiration for coming up with the Sandman as a comic book character. The initial germ of the idea, the initial germ of the idea, I can't do a British <laughs> uh, the, initial, <laughs> the initial germ of the idea for the Sandman comics was DC comics saying to me, we'd like you to do a monthly comic to try and raise your profile. So when I was trying to come up with an idea for a comic back then, I went, I wanted something that I could go anywhere with. I didn't know if I could write a monthly comic, but I thought, well, I'd give myself the widest possible playing ground, and the idea of an immortal being who had been around since the beginning of time, who was in your dreams, gave me historical, gave me horror, gave me fantasy, gave me contemporary, even gave me science fiction if I wanted it. And uh, as we'll find out, even gives you Martian Manhunter if you want to bring him in too. Um <laughs> The very first Sandman actually dates all the way back to July 1939, first appearing in Adventure Comics number 40. His name was Wesley Dodds, and he used a gun emitting sleeping gas to sedate criminals, starting out as a (laughs) mystery man before becoming a fully-fledged superhero with a sidekick called Sandy the Golden Boy. Oh, no. Oh, the golden age. (laughs) So definitely a very different tone from the Sandman we have here. Uh, and he went from 1939 to 1946. And I think he even like crossed over with like Batman and like with some of the other DC title uh, titles as well. Then there was a Sandman comic written for DC in 1974 to 1976, written by Joe Simon and Michael Fleischer and illustrated by Ernie Chua and Jack Kirby from Fantastic Four fame. Uh, well, and also lots of Marvel stuff. Uh, this was more based on the Sandman mythological dream character, so close to the one we know now, where he could enter the dream stream and the reality stream, which is a concept that Gaiman t- uh, carried over for his iteration of Sandman. And Gaiman thought that DC could revive this character and he'd be able to take it in, like, yeah, whatever direction he chose, 
And they really were sort of like, all right, if you bring back Sandman, just, you know, you, you keep the name and then just go nuts, do whatever you want, bring in whoever, you know. And so like he really did have kind of carte blanche to take the character in whatever direction he wanted. Uh, and in the final adventure for the uh, 70s Sandman, issue number 22, the best of DC, uh, get ready for this. He assists Santa Claus against a menacing band of seal men, like as an art art seal, uh, <laughs> who are angry about getting the wrong last Christmas. Oh, uh, no. Oh, so no. it was just sort of like, like he had to defend Santa Claus against like some like revenge, avenging like seals kind of thing. Uh, Not Navy seals, like actual seals. I believe, you know, I like, okay. I was trying to look at. Uh, exactly. I should just double check to see, like, here, I'm going to do, like, Sealman Sandman, which is quite a tongue <laughs> twister. Uh, and so, like, here it is, like, it's like, Sandman and the Sealmen's War on Santa Claus. And so they're not actual, I guess, like, seals. They're called the Sealmen. They're more, I guess, like, Arctic adventurers, but they're not, oh. like, Navy seals. But... It was so he stops the war on Santa Claus, and this is like an actual war, not like because people were saying happy holidays or whatever. <laughs> like, a, like a literal war on Santa Claus. Uh, then later in Wonder Woman number 300 in 1983, they retconned that Sandman to actually be Dr. Garrett Sanford, a UCLA psychology professor who got trapped in the dream dimension after saving. A great man, where it's hinting that it was possibly the U.S. president at the time, uh, kind of thing, without overtly saying, who was in a coma while being terrorized by a powerful nightmare monster. Uh, he then became an honorary Justice League of America member in JLA Annual Number 1, while helping them fight Dr. Destiny. And then in Infinity, Inc., Number 50, May 1988, it is revealed that Sanford had since gone insane due to the loneliness of the dream dimension and committed suicide, and that Hector Hall, formerly the Silver Scarab, has now taken over as the Sandman and was, in fact, using Dr. Sanford's body after his own was taken by the Silver Scarab. Uh, so, like, it is, he does have, I would say, some kooky-ish uh, origins, so to speak, some very wild stuff. So then... 1989, Neil Gaiman had just finished his three-issue miniseries Black Orchid with Dave McKean, who he wrote the kids' uh, movie Mirror Mask for that Dave McKean directed, which uh, is one of my favorite things that Neil Gaiman's done. And there were a bunch of concepts he cut from there, such as the original brothers, as they're called, Cain and Abel. They were originally going to be in Black Orchid. He took them out, and then he put them in uh, his pitch for reviving the Sandman. And as I mentioned before, a DC editor at the time, Karen Berger, had said, we like a new Sandman, just keep the name, but the rest is up to you. And so he, it was kind of like, I mean, I don't think it was like fully like on the fly, but he was kind of like, all right, like I can sort of like take in a bit in this direction and then go this way. And, you know, I don't have to, you know, I can, I can really play with it through all of her boundaries and that's why also like the tone really shifts from issue to issue, how and genre to genre from different issues, because you could have something that's more lighthearted and fun and kind of silly or comical. And then others are like really dark and tense. I mean, there's one issue definitely that we read that was wild for me. 
Uh, and then having like thrilling battles and uh, also just like long contemplative conversations on the nature of existence, uh, which Matt here will easily summarize in the next 30 seconds. Go. <laughs> right, that's all you need for. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. 30 right. seconds will do it. Yeah. Um, well, before I, I summarize, um, like, I, why I chose the Sandman comic books were because they kind of got me to realize there was more to comics. Um, mm. because I found, like, I was a lonely goth kid in suburbia <laughs> in the <laughs> 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, there's like, I had fallen out of love with uh, the X-Men, which were my main comic voice when I started, when I was reading comics, uh, because of the crazy, overwhelming events. But like, then a friend introduced me to Sandman, and it's like, these are contained, it's like one narrative story weaving through these paths. Um, it's, you don't have like, all the, the, you do have connections to things like Hellraiser and as the series goes on, less and less connections to the main DCU, but you don't need them. It's, it's all contained within these vertigo lines. And it's, it's dry. It, it just felt more nuanced. Like you, like things like the influenza sleepy sickness in the first episode issue was a real thing. That was a real strain of influenza during, uh, the, the 1900s, uh, epidemic that caused a certain amount of the population just to go into comas or to never sleep again. Like it was just one of those two switches were flipped or, you know, calling back to like, again, nerdy goth kid, like Satanism and stuff like that. And like drawing from these esoteric sources as a comic. Um, but yeah. So to, to summarize, um, set in the thick of the great war, uh, Occultist and cult leader Roderick Burgess, who is totally not Alistair Crawley, um, totally <laughs> not. Even he has beef with Alistair, but he's not in any way based on on Alistair Crawley. Uh, that's tongue in cheek for those who can't see it at home. Um, he leverages the grief of a curator at the British Museum uh, to get uh, at the loss of his son to get his hands on the Magdalen Grimoire a book that contains spells to find ancient powers. Uh, Burgess's young son watches in terror as his father, the Magus, weaves a spell with his cult, chanting, uh, and something comes to them. Uh, it's not who they hoped, which was death, but it was instead her dark brother, Dream. Um, so the world of Sandman, as Dan sort of intimated is a world of gods heroes and magic but beyond the gods there are the endless a group of anthropomorphic embodiments of universal forces that drive our experiences these siblings are destiny death dream destruction desire despair and delirium formerly known as delight uh, the endless serve all creatures human and other and this is who burgess is crossed um, Dream, also known by his Greek name Morpheus, is prone on the floor. Burgess entraps him in a glass ball uh, or sphere, uh, stealing away his, his articles of power, a helm, a pouch of sand, and a gem. Uh, they salt the circle and lock him in. Uh, and many years pass. Burgess 
uh, grows in power, uh, his son growing with him. Uh, they become very rich and very powerful. Um, eventually, Burgess's lover and his second-in-command run away to America, taking with them uh, these, these articles of power. Uh, so they still have enough wealth and power amassed to keep Morpheus trapped, but it begins to wane. Burgess, the elder, passes away, and uh, Burgess is younger, um, becomes very much like a guru hippie cult figure in the 1960s. Um, and eventually, uh, Alex, uh, the son of Roderick, um, begins to grow old himself and get, gets bitter that, you know, he just wants Morpheus to, to help him. Uh, but Morpheus, decades, 80 plus years, has not said a word. Um, accidentally, at one point, uh, Burgess's uh, lover, Alex's lover, wheels Alex's wheelchair over the circle, breaking the, breaking the circle, and thus letting Morpheus enter the dreams of the guards who have been keeping watch over him, popped up on amphetamines all of these years. Um, he breaks out, and that's when hell literally breaks loose. It, it's been, up until this point, it's very, the first few issues, it's very, um, it's, 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 it's kind of, a horror comic, but it's never not really over the top. But once Morpheus enters uh, enters Alex's dreams, it's some scary stuff. It's just some very grotesque and spooky imagery, uh, and uh, he he punishes Alex for going. Like he he admits that you know Alex didn't entrap him, but he didn't set him free. And when he had a chance, so he condemns Alex to forever be a. a forever waking, uh, meaning he's trapped in his nightmares, never awake and never asleep for the rest of his life. Mm. Um, so this sets Morpheus on a path to recover his tools. Um, he first goes back to uh, the dreamland, uh, which is um, what, you know, that sort of dream state that, that uh, the prior Sandman had been sort of passing through, uh, which we actually see uh, in the next run, we don't get to that in, in today's conversation, but Hector does make an appearance mm. in the next batch of issues and uh, is uh, a, plays a big part in the future of the story, right. which I won't spoil um, because it's very far down the road. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Morpheus starts, uh, he goes home, he goes to, he meets Cain and Abel, uh, who are actually characters from. House of Mystery uh, comic book series, horror comic anthology that DC had in the 60s and 70s. Um, he meets Lucian the librarian in his castle and finds that many of the dreams have fled. So he starts calling them back and uh, starts hunting for these missing dreams that don't return when they find that he has, he has uh, come home. Um, now, the first trinket Mar Morpheus receives, or the first trinket Morpheus retrieves, is his bag of magic sand. Um, this is the easiest in a way, uh, but it's also one of the very tragic 
story, which is like an interesting counterpoint because you don't expect genuine pathos in a lot of comic books. Like, but right out of the gate, we have this, you know, woman who's become addicted to his sand, who got it from stealing it from her lover, who is a magician who just sort of tossed it aside. Uh, this is where we meet John Constantine uh, of Hellraiser fame, um, really starting to cement this connection to the other what would later become Vertigo comic books. Um, he, he, uh, and this is where we start to see a thread of like maybe Morpheus is soft. We don't find out that this that he's softened, but there is some humanity in them in him in that he grants the woman who has his sand a peaceful death and like lets her die in a in a happy dream, not a painful dream. Um, so he's not out to punish everybody. He does have a sense of morality. Um, but it's very skewed at this point still. Um, now, uh, from here, Morpheus goes to hell to meet David Bowie. I mean, to meet Lucifer. Um, <laughs> it, 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 Neil actually specifically cites Lucifer, uh, the inspiration for Lucifer as a labyrinth era David Bowie, which you can really see. Um, to the point where one person actually, you know, wrote on Neil's Twitter, why didn't you cast David Bowie? You're being woke. And it's like, well, David Bowie's dead. <laughs> it was his response. Um, so, so yeah, just never, never underestimate the ability of fandom to be idiots. Uh, um, so but, weird. Yeah. yeah. Like, and it wasn't even a recent death. The show came out last year. David Bowie's yeah. been dead for what five, six years now. Like, yeah, he's been dead a long time. By the time they started, like that can't be stuff. like a fan of David Bowie's. That no, it's it... somebody like just just being contrarian. Yeah. Maybe they thought that that he could do like a like a holographic David Bowie as Lucifer or something. Yes, use AI, use AI to like uh, uh, it. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because um, I was going to say, like, I don't think a David Bowie fan would be like, oh, you've gone woke liberal. Or, yeah. yeah, that's true. That's so yeah. true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but so going to hell, he's led by another um, staple <laughs> of the DC universe, Etrigan, um, rhyming as best as he can. And this is actually a promotion. He wasn't a rhymer when Morpheus first met Etrigan. He was just a lowly demon. Now he's been promoted to rhymer. Uh, which is a weird yeah. little touch. This is sort of like the neat little touches that yeah. Damon throws in whenever he touches on a DC superhero character, which isn't that often. There's after the next set, like next big trade, I don't think he really touches on them again because he mm. realized, oh, I don't need to. And that just kind of holds me back to a certain degree. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he meets Lucifer, finds out there's a bit of strife. Um, um, but on his way to meet Lucifer, he actually passes by a former lover. And this is where we see this. This is where we're introduced to the spiteful side of Morpheus. Like, you know, his, his, he kind of can understand why he condemned the one guy to eternal nightmares. Mm-hmm. And you see, oh, he was nice to Rachel. Let her have a peaceful death. But here's this woman whose crime was not wanting to turn her back on her people. So she just couldn't, and she couldn't live without him. 
So she killed herself and he condemned her to hell for 10,000 years. She's been in hell. Yeah. It's like Morpheus, like dial it down a notch. You know, there's, and you'll see this as a trend. Like none of his exes have nice things to say about him. Yeah. <laughs> the rest yeah. of the series are all like, you know, you're I feel a bit like the like, court would say 25 years, maybe 30, but like, yeah. No, no, 10,000. And even then he's still like, well, not yet. No, got to sit in yeah, there for yeah. a while longer. Um, so he meets, uh, meets with Lucifer and they track down his helmet, which was purchased by a demon uh, called, and I'm going to try to say this, my, my diab- diabolic tongue is not the greatest, <laughs> Chironzron. Uh, I think that's how it's said. Um, so he purchased the helmet from the the assistant of Roderick um, for an amulet that protected the holder from being seen by Morpheus or any force, any any divine or the diabolic force. They have a riddle off, which is kind of cool because it is the kind of the type of game that you would have you'd see around fires like in 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 ancient times people would try to outwit one another by like riddling off kind of like well i am a horse well i am the wind well i am the sky well i am the stars and it's 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 one of the interesting things i find about gaiman and his storytelling is he uses these big concepts it's like the ultimate rap battle almost (laughs) yes yes. (laughs) yeah Like old school, your oldest of school. Yeah, Yeah. like literally old school. Yes. Um, So we're now into the last act, and we take a bit of a break from Morpheus. We find John Dee, who is also known as Dr. Destiny, and mentioned uh, earlier, uh, rotting in Arkham Asylum, um, where a guard gives him his inheritance from his, his now mother and it is the charm that prevents the fine that basically gives means nothing can hurt you and it's this charm that protected them from the Burgess family and from demonic and angelic forces breaks out of prison and this is where things got really intense and uncomfortable Mm. Um, and it sort of leans into horror tropes that are kind of Thankfully, it doesn't, the rest of the series doesn't really come back here, but this is where we see uh, the big influence that, like, um, uh, Clive Barker. Okay, mm. so so this is where we see the inspiration of Clive Barker in the heavy body horror and psychological horror. Yeah. Uh, we get into the sort of, like, the themes of madness that you get in writers um, like H.P. Lovecraft. So... It gets uncomfortable. Um, you know, as as he escapes, he hijacks a car and plays psychological games with this woman driving him. Yeah. Uh, while this is going on, Morpheus visits the Justice League, and yeah. we en- encounter Scott Free and the Martian Manhunter. And this is where we get to see how vast the power of the Endless is. So, and this is one thing I really found neat is over this course of issues, we get a really good world building um, because we see Scott has no concept. So he just sees Morpheus as just a guy, just, yeah. just a guy. Well, uh, Don, 
like the Martian Manhunter sees him as a Martian god. And he's a completely different shape. He presents as a completely different entity to a Martian than he presents to a person from uh, like Darkseid, uh, yeah. his home planet. So it's it's kind of, and that Scott Free being a demigod kind of almost doesn't like it doesn't click because he's one of the yeah. new gods. So he's kind of like not quite on balance or par with with uh, with with Morpheus, but he's kind of close. Uh, whereas John is like a he's, he's kind of like Superman's level of power, sort of like he's an alien with like all these different little. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's a it's a very interesting yeah. thing. So they find out. Okay, well they've stuck it in this warehouse. Yeah. Morpheus goes to grab the gem. They took it away from Doctor Destiny, and I just want to help. Oh, sorry, I just want to say this is also my favorite panel when then John Jones and Scott Free go off to have midnight Oreos together. Yes, yes, because, because <laughs> John like... loves an Oreo and he's hidden packages around the the, the mansion. <laughs> yeah. keep I've other got some Oreos eating. of which you can partake. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, I, that's one of the things I love about Gaiman too is like he gives these characters humanity in a way that I find a lot of traditional cape and cowl comic book writers often forget to do agreed yeah um but uh yeah so we find morpheus finds the gem and then his world collapses because it turns out dr d uh, dr destiny had tinkered with it adding technology that changed the resonance um we then go into um the most intense issue of this run uh, 24 hours uh, and won't break down too many details there just if you have read this or are going to read this be forewarned it is horror and very difficult to read Ooh, yeah. um, psychologically <laughs> and physically tortures a whole group of of poor standers by for just the sheer joy of doing that and mm-hmm. as he's doing this his power is growing the rest of the world ceases to be able to sleep their nightmares become living and everybody across the globe is going mad, which kind of explains why like superheroes don't come and get them because they're too busy dealing with all of this other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Um, It ends with him killing all of these poor innocent bystanders, at which point Morpheus has recovered enough to face off against John B. Uh, and he tricks him into destroying the stone. Um, being the big lesson to Morpheus, being he's put too much of his power into these artifacts, and he needs to take shoulder the responsibility of his powers himself. Mm. Uh, he returns uh, he to Arkham Asylum, taking pity on the monster. I don't know how I feel about this bit mm. uh, because he realizes it was his carelessness that helped create the monster to begin with. Um, argument to be to be decompressed there and unpacked yeah. there about that kind of thing um but it, it shows the beginning of an arc of redemption for morpheus and, and coming to understand that he is more than just a god and that is that is the gist of uh sandman's first big uh story arc nice yeah yeah what did, what did you guys think? What did you, how, did you, how did you enjoy it? 
I, I mean, yeah. If you want to go first, lady, or uh, yeah. Um. Yeah. Like, I'm a big Neil game. I wouldn't say I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan. I'd say I'm a Neil Gaiman enthusiast. Uh, um. One being like I've tried I've been reading Good Omens for a couple years now not because I didn't like the book it's because I tell someone how great it is and then I end up giving them my copy before I <laughs> I have I've done that I've had the same thing happen with me and Neil Gaiman I had a, a signed autographed copy of his short stories Angels and Visitations limited edition gave it away to a girl on a second date never saw her Oh, oh no! no. <laughs> I have had the same thing happen. I can't even get that. that that's book like, anymore. yeah, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> it's like you hear about In people who like date someone to like take their like get their money, steal their wallet. She did something worse. Worse, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but like I so. I I str- I mentioned to you before how that I kind of struggled reading this, and not because I didn't see how like like it's still brilliant. And I'm trying to put it into context in when it was written, because it was 1988, 1989, I believe. Yeah. 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 So reading it for the first time in 2023, it just is a different um, different perspective. And um, like you said, 24 hours, if anyone is going to read it, like we are giving 100 graphic content warnings <laughs> ahead yes. of time. All um, of the triggers like, are or yeah. warning. Oh, yeah. 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 Like... Um, and there's other stuff trickled and in, trickled into it and other issues, but I, for some reason, like when it's part of the narration versus part of the dialogue, it's a different story because there are talks of assaults with some of the people who are in these, uh, like these dream comas and everything as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So reading 24 hours, like I, I literally had to stop and I didn't want to keep going after 24 hours for a long time. Cause like, I mean, in my standup, I talk a lot about PTSD and what it's like to live with PTSD, but I try to do so in a way that it's inclusive to people who also experience it so that they're not going to be triggered by listening to like me describing these things, like, like completely visually. Um, so I try to do that with a grain of salt. So reading that was a little bit, uh, disturbing i guess but like yeah aside from that issue there's some really brilliant parts in it i love the cain and abel aspect of mm-hmm. like them killing <laughs> them. Yeah. you're not yeah. gonna kill me again yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. oh cain <laughs> for sure which yeah, obviously i guess the, is like yeah. yeah i was just gonna oh, say okay. it reminds like like it's like the bible because cain is the one who then like kills his brother abel but like and it's exactly, supposed to be like yeah. that like serious gravity in the bible and then here it's just like oh not again are you (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like i I really wanted to enjoy it i just think that that one issue just kind of made it difficult and i actually went to see like i i watched two of the episodes on netflix to kind of see what the different like because neil gaiman was executive producer on those so i wanted to see what his take on it would be yeah yeah, would be on like today's world and a lot of it was trimmed down like there was a couple scenes that were still like that episode specifically that were a little bit cringe but like Mm. not to the extent of the of the book itself which i really appreciate it and and not to excuse it contextualize it aside from also the year it was written he was 23 yeah when he wrote that he was he had written a duran duran interview some short stories black lotus and that's about it um like 
So he was a fresh right, writer, yeah, no. 23-year-old goth kid hanging out in London, freshly out of the cult of Scientology, although he still hasn't called it a cult. His family are still <laughs> in it. Um, it he, you know, hanging out with Tori Amos, and he wrote this. And so, I mean, it's not, like I said, not, I, everything you said is valid. I totally understand. But I think, you know, when he revisited the material, like a big change uh, when he adapted it to screen, he mm -hmm. cut away a lot of the gratuitous or he cut, he cut to the emotional beats without all of the gratuitous additional material that is sort of that Clive Barker -y kind of vibe that I feel doesn't work. Or at least for me, it never worked. And I don't think it works in the kind of material he was trying to create. Mm. It just didn't have the skill or the world was in a different way. So it's, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how it evolves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I, I mean, I, he is, it's one of those difficult, like he, he tries to deal with these themes that are not, were not addressed in comic books that back then about agency and body autonomy and, and rape um, and physical and emotional abuse. But he's a white dude. Yeah. It's like, oh, I, I, I'm sure he consulted with people, but it's like there was nobody else making those. So it's this catch 22. It's like, it is, yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it, but at least he I does feel like he's trying, even over the course of the series, he handles those scenes with greater and greater grace mm -hmm. um, as they come in later. Like, um, Calliope, which was in the TV show, is one of the bonus episodes at the end, um, which is kind of a spin on Clive Barkery kind of style of like, it's not Clive Barker, but it's very based on Clive Barker, this horror writer mm. who um, captures one of the muses and then he sells it to this younger horror writer for a Borazor, uh, which is like a, a hairball, basically. Um, that calcifies in the humans or in a stomach. It doesn't have to be a human. Um, and that, that is it again. It hits a lot of really ugly themes um, that are traumatizing to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But it's always trying to tell the right story, but it's not necessarily telling it in a way because of his perspective that mm. he intends it to. Sure, um, yeah. like he's trying to like these men are the monsters. These men have done horrible things. These men have need to be punished. But the way he treats the women in the comic book, yeah. Um, and in mm. the next run, there's a character um who is a trans character or no second to next run, um, who he's like, oh, I wouldn't do what I did to them. Like when I adapt that, I'm changing that because it was not mm. not right. Okay. But, yeah. Right. Okay. So I mean, at least he's learned. <laughs> he's learned. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. And that's the thing with Neil. Like, if it was anyone else, I would have been like, "Oh, like done." But like, one of my favorite quotes is from Neil Gaiman, where he says, "I think I'm gonna maybe paraphrase it, but it was like my favorite kind of heroine or my favorite kind of female character is or damsel is the one who saves themselves." And yeah. like that's very much he's yeah. like very much like and later on he definitely his his work shows that in a lot of ways. But yeah, this one was 
a little bit different yeah. for sure. And I don't mean to shit on like one of your favorite. Yeah, yeah, your favorite no, no. I mean, this is a, va- it's a valid yeah. criticism yeah. and I totally understand. And I, like going back to like the film adaptation in a way he, because like the comic is very white. It's mm-hmm. very, very white. There are next mm-hmm. to no people of color in it at all. Certainly no major characters. Um, that's something he addresses in the film adaptation, but in talking to another uh, friend of mine, he was like, there's the one scene leading up to 24 hours. They changed the driver, uh, to an African-American woman. Mm. And he's like, you know, this violence on people of color is triggering. So it's like in correcting he doesn't he over he, he yeah. tries to make it better, but then he's creating this other problem where it's a different kind of trauma that he is mm-hmm. he's creating. Yeah. And it's a very fraught landscape, but understandably slow. As, as a creator, it's his responsibility to make sure that that happens. Um thankfully he does actually change one element of that story in Dr. D lets the or Mr. or John D lets the person live in that yeah. version. <laughs> and doesn't kill them. Which humanizes John D a little bit, which you needed coming into the next part, which justifies doing a little bit of a little bit Morpheus's um, pity that he takes on him because he's sure. like he is capable of good. He's not mm. like an absolute monster, whereas in the comic he was an absolute monster. Yeah. I don't yeah. Yeah. like his providing like mercy is just makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That is, I, I and I I will say also when I was in film school at like twenty three or so, uh, all the white guys were making like movie. It would be like, what do you want for your final project? All right, so this guy and like the woman he loves has been assaulted, or like you know it's all those like because this is going to be really dramatic, right? So <laughs> like it's yeah. kind of and it's like why does it have to be that way? Um, yeah, but for sure I think Reminds I me, after yeah. yeah sorry go ahead. No, it just reminds me, yeah. I don't know if you guys ever watched the show Extras, but uh, yeah. there's this episode with Kate Winslet who she's like, oh, well, I have to do this war period because that's the only way I'm going to get a nom- an Oscar nom. Yeah, she's <laughs> and, like, yeah. do a Holocaust film? You get, a, you get, you get an Oscar nom. And then she <laughs> was in the reader and does. got an Oscar for <laughs> yeah. Yeah, being in a Holocaust film. Um, yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, that, yeah, so John D was really, uh, yeah, that was a really intense issue i think i had i'm like i'm gonna need to watch an episode of bob's burgers after this uh, like, like this is like it's like very well written and stuff i was like ooh, that was like uh i'm glad after that also it does like he does shift to a, a lighter tone in the next issues and i think a couple mm-hmm. issues later uh is when he speaks to you know his sister death or whatever and that's a much even though that's is dealing with death it's a much lighter you know, and more philosophical thing where I'm like, yeah. ah, this is like a, it's cleansing the palate kind of thing, <laughs> right? I, like, the, and when I watched, he knows what to keep. That's the thing. I think, like, it would be mm. interesting to see him retell this story from beginning to end. Well, we kind of are with the Netflix series, yeah. Uh, because you watch the episode of Netflix, the Netflix show where it's that death, a day with death kind of thing. I was in tears the entire time. I still oh, choke yeah. up. It usually takes me until about halfway through the comic book to start crying, um, yeah. especially now I'm older and my grandparents have passed away and stuff. It Absolutely. really hits. It hits differently. Um, so you can kind of, which is like, 
which is the mark of good writing is like it has different layers at different points in your life mm. um but yeah like he knows what works and he knows what doesn't and there's a lot that as like a 23 year old man he probably shouldn't have written because it's it's building the lily he's he's just burdening it with all of this unnecessary stuff um, and like dan you're saying like oh everybody's doing these sort of like edgy like oh it's like and i was thinking like that's basically john wick except they made it his puppy like right, that, yes. that's john yeah. wick is basically like well we don't we want to fridge something but we don't want to fridge his girlfriend <laughs> because let's fridge his puppy everybody will get behind that for sure well, <laughs> sure, and yeah. it's funny because like I remember, so I made a student film that had a, uh, well, like right out of film school, the first short film I made has a dog dying, getting crushed by a robot. Um, and I, when I first started dating my wife, she was like, oh, I want to see that movie. And she almost like ended it there because I had like, <laughs> for her, like, she'll see. And like for her, she hasn't seen the John Wick movies. I feel like I could just like, Fast forward those first five minutes for her and just say, like, look, this is what happens. Now watch. And she would be like, he wasn't brutal enough. Like, <laughs> she, like it's like you could see she could watch like someone kill 100 people in a movie. But like if you kill like a dog, then it'll be <laughs> yeah. like it's like you're the biggest yeah. monster ever. If you even like try to harm the dog or whatever. Like there's so many times where we've watched something and like a dog, an animal is in danger and it's like animals and babies in danger it'll be like oh like you better not <laughs> yeah that's fair i i one of the things i love about this is his weird comic book references like they're way yeah. left field deep yeah. cut yeah, like, yeah you know so like reference to so i get in this universe which i don't feel is the main dc universe because it splinters off so much i mean it starts there but by the end of like the next run, like the last thing was Element Girl. I think she's Element Girl. The uh, in two story in two trades, um, that's the last reference to mainstream DC comics. After that, it's it's completely its own self-contained Vertigo universe. But I mean, Silver Surfer Surfer comics are referenced. Um, <laughs> so Silver Surfer is a comic in this universe. Um, yeah, but Which also is the you got DC, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's but I mean, there's also been references to Superman and Batman and stuff in Marvel comics. So DC oh, comics are comics in Marvel's universe. So it's kind of a funny like yeah. intersection. Yeah. And that, um, but Ours. yeah, so yeah, yeah. So you got um references that include works by Kirby, Serta, uh, uh, Samixon, Alan Moore. And then you also have like these weird, really esoteric mythological stuff. So it's like you need to have like an encyclopedia of comics and then an encyclopedia of mythology like next to you while reading these yeah. books sometimes, I feel. He's he's almost he's like the Tom Stoppard of like comic books, like how Tom Stoppard's plays will all like reference so many like historical and like philosophical things or whatever. And then. Yeah, that's what Neil Gaiman does with uh, comic books. Like you need the annotated Sandman or like. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I love like the inspiration that he draws from real figures as well. Mm. Like, real figures. Mm -hmm. in um, like 
Lucifer, going back to Lucifer, we've had Lucifer played by Tom Ellis in Lucifer, but also Gwendolyn Christie and Michael Sheen, uh, who oh. plays him in the audible audio version of it, um, which oh, is no. funny because he plays an angel in Good Omens. Yeah. And um, and all of them really work. Like, like that seems to be like a care. Like, he just knows, like, this is the voice that I need. And when he's like citing like an inspiration, I'll go with David Bowie because David, that's, that's a very ace. It's like a very androgynous kind of sexuality, but without feeling like you look at desire and Lucifer and you'd think they'd overlap, but Lucifer has an elegance to him. Whereas desire is a raw sexuality. And that's, illustrated very well or like these different creatures um and they, they like because you could also see like oh david bowie would be good for that no i think david bowie is too much david bowie's too classy you know mm-hmm. and um whereas desire is just like just hungry kind of thing yeah. and it's like it's very subtle it's very subtle twists on the same kinds of characters and that, that i love yeah i just want to say also it's very fittingly talking about Sandman as I heard my wife uh, putting my son very reluctantly to bed. Like he's very <laughs> much fighting as he's like, no, the Sandman's not safe. It's not going to be. I need my <laughs> yeah. I know that's not it. Aww. He's just grumpy. had a long day, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other thoughts anybody wants to share on these before we say goodbye? Uh, no, it was good. It was a nice, like, uh, I mean, I know we've, it's kind of cool that, that we've done some more, like, sort of, uh, like, to move out of just the straight superheroes and try something also, like, a mm-hmm. bit different, but still, you know, in that superhero adjacent, so it's cool. Yeah. Okay, folks, well, you've been listening to Detecting, Detecting the Marvelous. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye! listening to Detecting the Marvelous, a Far From Here Productions and ShowbizMonkeys.com co-production. Your producers have been Dan Rosen, Lainey LaRose, and Matt Ardell. Music composed by Glenn Bouchon. And art by Ben Steamroller. Thanks for listening, and remember, true believers, Excelsior! Excelsior!